like yeah like the that's hand- pretty relatable to yeah, like just having is. a job because you need to make ends meet like those like aren't really all henchmen when it comes down to it no oh um, no i have the one the real villain was made yeah. all along was the whole time And welcome to the Book Jar Podcast. My name is Marissa, and this is my friend Megan. Hello. Hello. I switched up my opening. Did you notice? Yeah, it kind of threw me off there. I wasn't expecting <laughs> to talk so early. You're like, oh, she's going to ramble for 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is where we sp- discuss book related news and topics on a bi weekly basis. Uh, and how this works is each week we pull our next topic from what we call the book jar, which is literally a jar full of little. Pieces of paper with mm-hmm. topics on them. Mm-hmm. And last week, we pulled out a very uh, villainous topic. Um, but we're going to talk about our most recent reads first. I tried for a pun, but I didn't yeah. really work. I saw where you were going with that. <laughs> it was still cute. Oh, thank you. Uh, so what, what books have you finished? Because uh, I was with Alex Kalfa the last episode. Yes, yes. So... I assume while you were in, you know, Italy, you were just reading strictly. All like I just read like you just all stayed of the in book. like the hotel and read and read. Yeah, you didn't see any of Italy, <laughs> just book. No. Like what's even there? Like the Colosseum or something? I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, that's lame. Just kidding. <laughs> um, I actually read a few books. Um, like to be honest, I didn't read like for the first part of the trip mm. for obvious reasons. But towards the end, I got to like fit in. I finished two books there. Oh, surprising. Very nice. And then I finished an extra one when I got back. So I was actually fully expecting the zero books read. And I was like, actually not. Like, that was no judge. That was a judgment free. But like, I'm super impressed. I know. Because I was impressed. I just, you know, it was kind of like a relaxing towards the end because we kind of seen all the things. And we're like. Oh, so you were just like. Oh, I'm, I'm going like, to catch up. Yeah. yeah. So the first one I read was actually a novella, so that was kind of a quicker read. Mm-hmm. And that's The Annual Migration of Clouds by Primi Muhammad. Okay. And she's actually from Alberta, our home province here. Yes. And she's won the Nebula Award. I kind of talked about it a little bit before in our Extra Extra. 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 Uh, it's really cool. It's like a, kind of like a post-apocalyptic like book where this community is working together just trying to survive, get through all this stuff. And then our main character, she gets accepted into this like dome university type thing mm-hmm. where as far as they know, they are trying to get like life back to the way they know it. Like they aren't living kind of in the slum still. Like it's a very interesting concept. So she gets accepted into this and it's her coming to terms with like leaving her community behind and leaving her role behind mm-hmm. and then like going to a new world kind of sort of for her so devs recommend that the next one i read was once upon a cave prom by cat cho okay so you, this is dating <laughs> when we recorded this a little bit but i saw you post that on instagram as a reel like this morning <laughs> and i was like i hate that you read it virtually because i cannot borrow it i know it's 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 really cute and like yeah like i wouldn't have gotten it like i probably would have bought the actual physical physical copy but yeah. again like I read it in Italy and I had my e-reader so I was like obviously I really want to read this because it released when I was over there yeah and I mean it's like how it sounds it's like a cute little it reminds me of like those 80s 90s rom-com teen movies oh yeah you know Freddie Prince Jr. type <laughs> type <laughs> I mean I'm not that old Zac, Zac Efron and Freddie Prince yeah. Jr. Freddie Prince Jr. Megan's heart <laughs> was younger Megan you know, like eight year old Megan and Zach Efron is now Megan. Well, <laughs> you weren't like a Jonathan Taylor Thompson Thomas? Uh, no. Nah, he's like cute. I don't know. He's cute, but I didn't watch a lot of stuff with him in it. Oh, my family was <laughs> obsessed with Home Improvement. Oh, and really? he was one of the sons. <laughs> yeah. So, and then my, my sister had a book and it was like his like mini biography. <laughs> that's so funny and I like I actually didn't read it until I was like it was well it was like more into the Zac Efron era yeah but you know how I am I always have to like things after the fact yeah 
So I was like, oh my gosh, she was so phenomenal. <laughs> I was like swooning over Zach Efron. I'm swooning over someone who's like now in their 30s. <laughs> Not quite, but like. Well, that's how I felt with the Hanson brothers, actually. Like, oh yeah. When I discovered them, when they like reemerged, and yeah. I'm like, man, they're attractive. They're like 20 years older than me, but, but they're still attractive. They're still cute. Anyways, back to the back to your book. Back to the book. Um, so it had that vibe along with like had like K-pop stars in it, which is all the rage now. Yeah, the it reminded me of like every other manga that I've read on the app that I have, mm-hmm. which is called Manta. Mm-hmm. And there's like a whole subsection where it's just like it's just K-pop. Like oh really? Yeah, and it's um because like because it's. So oh, culturally yeah. relevant. Like, yeah. there's a lot of, like, stories. And there's specific ones about, like, specific K-pop fans. Like, yeah, actual fans. Like, fan fictions. And like, almost fan thing. fictions. But then there's, like, a whole genre where they just, like, imagine it's, like, the anti-fan mm-hmm. trope. Where, like, the girl oh, isn't a fan of the yeah. band. Yeah. And then ends up meeting them. And then, obviously, ends up dating one of the members. That's or totally. A couple of the members. This book is kind of, like, anti-fan. Like, well, it, they're childhood friends, and then he becomes, like, famous in this K-pop group, and she, like, listened to them before they were, like, famous, mm. but wasn't keeping up with I them. I was a fan before they were big. Yeah. yeah, and then she, like, wasn't keeping up with them, so she wasn't really a fan when he came back into her life, but it's just, it's just, like, a nice, lighthearted read, very, like, entertaining, easy to get through. Nice. And, yeah, just cute, so I really like that one. And then the last one I read was We Were Liars by E. Lockhart. Oh, you did good. I know. And this one, like, I, to be honest, I got it because it was like $2. And I was like, I just really want something that'll like, yeah, have like twists and turns. And I heard a lot of things about this, like when it came out, I think it came out like 2017. It's been out for a while. And yeah, I just, I want to say it was probably one of my, my top pick for this year so far. <gasps> Like, really? That I'm putting those words out in this world. I've seen a lot of the book, and then you know how I feel about really popular books. Mm-hmm. I'm always, like, really wary of them. Mostly as, like, a self-defense thing. I just don't want to get my hopes up too high. Yeah. So that's really interesting for you to hear. And immediately my brain's like, don't think it's going to be good, because then you're going to be yeah. disappointed. Which is kind of true. Like, I don't want to put too much expectation on it. But that makes me want to read it now, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And honestly, I was the same way when it first came out, because everyone was talking about it. And the whole thing is, like, if anyone tells you how the book ends, lie. Like, that's, like, the slogan of the... Oh, okay. The advertising or whatever. So what's your lie? Book. You should read. Oh, that's, this is a really weird question because I don't know how to answer it. I want you to read it. But anyways. Yeah. I just don't want to say anything else without spoiling anything. Or I, I feel like that you was had, a... You, maybe you had a lie. No, I was... Um, set up. I was not prepared for that question. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> I... I didn't mean to catch you off guard, and I definitely didn't mean to put you in a situation where I know you now feel like you might spoil something. I was like, I'm either going to spoil it, or it'll be so confusing. Okay. You'll be like, why does she want me to read it? Do you have a physical copy of this book? I do. Don't. No. You don't. No. Okay. I will find one and read it before we meet up next, because I feel like you're about (laughs) to explode. I just want to talk about it, okay? Okay. Great. All right. Uh, So, I read... I read a few... I have pulled out of my reading slump, finally. Um, and by reading slump, of course, I meant that I was reading, like, one book every two weeks, which is not a bad rate. It's not a bad feeling, though, when you're not reading as much as you're used to. Yeah. And, but once you get out of it, it's like... Feels great. But, so I read I Want to Tell You Lies by John Lane, which is, uh, technically, it's like a chapbook, which is a very, very short collection of poetry. Oh, okay. Um, not always poetry, um in terms of a chapbook, but in this case it was. It was just a short collection of some poems by John Lane. It was really wonderful. So the first section of the poems, like, they were all, like, locations followed by a date. And I'd been having a little bit of trouble reading, and then and then some of them were, like, Canadian places oh. with, with, like, very... It was, like, the 50s. And so it was, like, kind of interesting because I felt a little bit more connected to those ones just because I could feel those places a little bit better. And then some of the stories were just, or the poems were just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Like, just gorgeous, 
some of them were short and pithy and awesome and others were very a little bit longer and kind of boiled out their point a little bit more but highly recommend I don't know where you would find this you can see it it looks it's like stapled yeah did you print that off no I didn't But this is kind of a trademark of a chapbook and um, like a lot of poets will actually make their own chapbooks. Oh. And this one was published by um, a publication that I think only publishes chapbooks based off of their name. Mm -hmm. Chapbooks is in the name. Oh, yeah. Um, But it has that very um, feeling and I got it from a used bookstore. Um, The greatest part of it was that there's a signature dedicated to somebody who is not me. It's to Steve. (laughs) Very best. (laughs) 1988 latitude 53 what is that what is latitude 53 did you look it up i didn't i I didn't and now i really want to (laughs) okay (laughs) i want to know where steve lives (laughs) steve we're coming for you okay so latitude 53 is right about as far north as edmonton which we're both familiar with but um you can google that on your own for your own kind of education location point <laughs> purposes <laughs> relation to yourself yeah if you're not in alberta all the geographic nerds out there i'm sure they're gonna go. yell at us if there's any listening <laughs> yeah i'm so sorry we don't take geography in alberta <laughs> very 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 cool uh i read it it's it's 34 pages so it's a book so i have it done as a book <laughs> But technically, yeah, like it was a lot shorter than what, you know, conventionally is kind of considered the length mm-hmm. of the book. So, but it was nice because I sat down and read it in about 45 minutes, taking my time to like mull over the poems, which was really nice. Um, and then I was able to move on to a couple other books. So I read Skin of the Sea by Natasha Bowen, um, which focuses on mermaids. Do you really read a mermaid book or is this the one? No, this is the one that about? I ordered and I was right. very excited about. Um, and it ties into like African folklore. Oh cool. And it's also mermaids during the start of the slave rope. Oh. So it's mermaids like seeing all this happen from the water and all these ships leaving and everything that goes along with that. Oh wow. And it's the story of kind of the gods choosing whether or not to fight back, I guess is a good way to explain it. It was mm-hmm. it was very good. I have a lot of thoughts on it that um, I think some of the writing near the beginning wasn't as strong as near the end, mm-hmm. but it was a book that like I devoured in one. I actually like <laughs> I read it in the bath because <laughs> I was like, this is fitting. And then and then I kept reading it and like my bath was getting cold and I kept like adding more hot water <laughs> so I didn't have to get out yeah. <laughs> because it was just so perfect. And so I, I like I like legitimately stayed in the bath way longer than anyone should ever stay in a bath. <laughs> and I was just like reading this book and I finished it and I was like, Oh wow. That was wonderful. And it's uh it's gonna be a duology, so um she has the other one coming out as well. I'm very excited for that one. Sounds like a good one. Yeah, and then I read Before the Coffee Gets Cold by Kawaguchi with uh Jeffrey Truselock as the translator. Okay. And this is about a it's magical realism. It's about a cafe in which you can travel back in time or you can travel through time rather, I should say. You can travel forward as well. Um but there's very strict rules on what you can do while you're there and you can only sit in the cafe when you go back in time mm-hmm. and you have to leave before the coffee gets cold. Oh. It was a very, it was a very, it was kind of divided into four stories. Very, very good look at a lot of real life struggles using a little bit of magic. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think it was one of the more beautiful books I've read so far this year. Very impressed with that one. And then I read, actually finished this two nights ago, uh, War Cross by Mary Lou. Mm -hmm. So that was, I know you read it, so you kind of already explained in a previous podcast what that was about, but it's got a lot of virtual reality, augmented reality in it. Um, And it it was very, it reminded me a lot uh, without feeling like it was at all the same as Oh my god, I forgot its name, that really famous one. Ready Player One? Ready Player One, thank you. In the sense that, like, it was just a society that has come to rely on this piece of technology, but also it was not the same at all. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed the story. I did see some of the... This isn't a huge plot spoiler, but maybe a little bit of one. I did see the twists coming, like, from miles away. Mm-hmm. Like, I called it, like, very early. I was like, well, this is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was like, and this is that. Yeah. Um, Like, a little bit later. Uh, 
but still really well done. Like it didn't feel just because I expected it, it didn't feel less mm-hmm. like valuable or realistic or important. It was just like, oh, I definitely saw yeah, that coming. I agree. And I also think like Warcross is just a very good like like it was probably one of the first like really science fiction-y mm-hmm. type of books that I've read. And I think it's a very good like intro. Yes, I would agree. To that. So that's why I would for sure recommend Warcross. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than the fact that it is like a good story and it's a good book. Yeah. But yeah, like if you're interested in dabbling in sci-fi, check out Warcross. Yeah. And so we should probably get started on our actual topic. <laughs> uh, so our question was, which was from Alicia, and I only remember that because Alicia makes us work for these questions. Uh, in your opinion, what makes a good antagonist and give examples? So I know we were kind of talking about structuring this. I, I wanted to take the moment to talk a little bit about different types of villains. This is no way going to be like an all-encompassing list because mm-hmm. there are, d- depending on how you want to break down mm-hmm. The categories, there's there's many more villains in this, or even fewer, if you wanted to, like, shorten up some of the categories. Um, But I kind of settled on eight main archetypes that we see throughout a lot of literature. I'm going to kind of start, I'm just going to start. So uh, the first one is the Mm anti-villain, which, like, personally, like, just looking at a list of categories, that's probably one of my top ones. I think a lot of other categories make good cases when done well. Yeah. But this is the one that we typically love. This is, like, Loki, also. Yeah. From... Like, the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Loki. Uh, but, like, that that villain where you're like, I kind of I like him, though. So this is um, anyone who has sympathetic motivations. So Draco Malfoy, I would also consider this from the Harry Potter series. Um, but only in the later books. Yeah. I think he fits a different category better in the earlier books. And I'll mm-hmm. get to that in a second. I also have uh, Tywin Lannister as a candidate. Okay. Whereas, like, a lot of the villains or antagonists in the novels tend to be very, like, very evil or like Mm -hmm. sociopathic and he kind of has more reason for what he's doing yeah that's that's um those are good examples i had frankenstein's monster as well yeah i actually really like that i i just like think like for those who like haven't read frankenstein i feel like they just assume that frankenstein's monster is just like that's what he is he's a monster he's killing people he's the main villain well i mean he is the main villain but like He's actually, like, a very, like, emotional, like, intelligent being. And the reason he wants revenge on humankind and on Dr. Frankenstein is, like, it's justifiable, like, why he feels like that. So, yeah, like, I personally love him as a villain and, like, he's a good anti-villain. Yeah. Um, I'm going to list all the other categories really quickly and then we'll go Mm -hmm. into definitions as well. I meant to do that first. So we have the beast, the bully, the machine, the mastermind. Evil incarnate, the henchman, and the fanatic. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Frankenstein's monster, and a lot of people would categorize him, I think, as the beast mm-hmm. as well. I actually agree with your categorization, <laughs> but I think it's a good debate. It's also a good point that these archetypes exist, and they exist for a reason, because they tend to fall in these categories, but that doesn't mean they always only fall in one, yes. or that they only have to fall in one. Um, But the Beast is a literal monster. This is an antagonist who cannot be bargained or reasoned with. Is it like a kind of top description of it? I have Pennywise from It Mm -hmm. by Stephen King, which I've never actually, I I haven't read It in its entirety. But from what I understand of Pennywise, he's just like a monster for monster's sake. Yeah. Other examples are like animals. So like the whale in Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Yep. I put, like, totally, I don't know, maybe I'm out of left field here. I put Jack Torrance from The Shining. And I know he's not a beast. <laughs> <laughs> I just lost my shit. I Hot actually, take or what? <laughs> I, I love that take, though, because there is... So I think it either has to be the beast or evil incarnate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he's technically, like, possessed. Well, he, yeah, he's... In a way. He's possessed by like one of the older caretakers like yes one of them who died at the overlook hotel and he's so focused on getting danny and killing danny and like all this stuff that i just feel like he stops being a person yeah he's no longer a person he's i love that reading of it yeah isn't it like i just was thinking about it i'm like because i do have the overlook hotel as evil incarnate like that was my example okay but jack torrance himself i'm like he's more of the physical embodiment of that i 
kind of love that. Yeah. So I think I think he's either he's definitely one of the two, and I think you can make an argument for either. This is why I love literature because it's never clear cut, and there's always an argument to be made. Actually, I'm gonna jump ahead to the evil incarnate just because we mentioned it a couple times. Sure. So this is the personification of evil. This is generally found in like superhero genre or in fantasy novels or in horror. Yeah. Um, and Sauron is probably like the most famous example about this. Mm-hmm. Again, you can split hairs here and you can say that Sauron is not this. Mm-hmm. Technically, like Tolkien wrote Sauron to be as evil as evil could be. And so that really fits for me. Sauron has a lot going on. I'm going to talk about him a little bit later as well. But yeah, we actually, you never get a full description of Sauron in the oh, novels. Really? It's very vague, mm-hmm. which is why when the movies took it as like a big eye, like a literal eye, it was an interesting take. Yeah. Even though that wasn't technically like Sauron, it was like, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. But <laughs> uh, Evil Incarnate, so you have the hotel. Yeah, so I did the Overlook Hotel from The Shining because like it's literally full of wrathful, murderous ghosts that haunt whoever lives there yeah. or is taking care of it. Like I said, he the, the hotel itself is using these ghosts and these demons or whatever you want to call them to like take over Jack and convince him to kill his family because they want Danny's power for themselves. Yeah, I don't think there's a single Stephen King novel where you can't make a justification for evil incarnate in oh, it. Oh, for sure. Because yeah. I know uh, The Stand was one that I read. And it was like the it was like literally like the devil incarnate. I'm pretty sure like appears in the novel, and it's very like <laughs> that's about as evil as evil. Can yeah, get, right. Yeah, no, I definitely like it, and I love that he wrote the hotel like a character itself. Yeah, like it has wants and it has purposes and it has a motive and a motive. Yeah, yeah so very interesting. Technically, number three, but our fourth one here is the bully. So this is the meanie. This is directly opposing the protagonist. This might be, these are very common in like children's novels for obvious reasons because like lots of kids experience an actual bully in real life. But also you see it in classic literature. So I have, and I know you have him under a different category. Yeah. So Iago from Othello. Ah. Well, yeah, I want to hear what you say about him. So I, I put Iago because... At all times, he is bullying Othello into believing that his wife is cheating on him. Mm -hmm. And it really seems to only stem from the fact, like, the blatant racism of Othello. Mm -hmm. Like, he just doesn't like Othello. And so he's like, well, obviously, like, he just, he's bullying him into believing something. Mm -hmm. You have a different take, which (laughs) I'm going to get to in a second. I also have Draco Malfoy. So this yeah. is in the earlier Harry Potter books um, where Draco, and I define this as different because in the later books, we have him as the anti-villain because we know he doesn't really want to be doing all these evil things, you know, like, spoilers, killing Dumbledore or like mm-hmm. hurting people. He doesn't really want to be doing it, but he feels like he has to for this reason. And he becomes a more sympathetic character. But in the earlier books, he's just fucking mean. <laughs> he's just awful. He's just a spoiled little brat. Yeah, and you just hate him because yeah. he's mean for no reason. Mm-hmm. Even though in the later books you realize it's because of his parents and like this complex relationship, and then you start to kind of feel sorry for him. Yeah, I had like obviously Dudley Dursley from there, and like Aunt Marge, freaking Aunt Marge. Yeah, and but I Aunt also... Marge is like the like epitome of the book. Oh yeah, like for sure. Like she's just the worst. Anyways, Agatha Trunchbull. From Matilda. Yeah. I feel like she... She has no other reason to be mean but to be mean. Yeah. Like, she's just a horrible person. Even her backstory is, like, she was just a sh- shitty human being to was Miss Honey. That's that's her, like, I don't know, sister... In- sister yeah. I don't know yeah. what they are. But, yeah, like, she's just a... Like, she's wicked, you know? She's abusive. She's cruel. She doesn't care what happens to kids. Yeah. Like, she, it's wild. Like, I just... And for no reason. Like, there's, no reason. There's, there's just this, like, want of power. Yeah. But nothing else. Not for any reason, just to have power over people. Yeah. So that's... I thought she was kind of into that category. Okay, why don't you tell me where you had Diego? Okay, so I had him under the mastermind. Okay, so the mastermind is the leader of a diabolical plan. Um, I, I don't <laughs> hate your reading of it, though. So, like, the only reason I wouldn't have put him there is because it's not a big plan. Yeah. And it's not like a... He is being diabolical, and I'll give you that. And it is a plan. Like, he is formulating this evidence against, like, 
against Othello's wife to prove to him mm -hmm. or to try to lie to him that his wife is cheating on him for really no other reason than to do it. But, like, that's where I lose the, like, I guess, like, for me, like, yeah, I guess if you're taking it into, like, the literal sense that it's, like, a huge diabolical master plan, like, you're probably thinking, like, they want to take over, like, the kingdom or the world. Yeah. Or, like, like you think it's going to be so much extravagant. And, like, to me, the way I saw it, it was, like, Diego was more of, like, a manipulator. Like, he was kind of manipulating people around him and, like, kind to of, To control like, situations. Yeah, like a yeah. chess player kind of thing. And I think that, yeah, like, originally, I think, like, obviously, he was, like, he just doesn't like Othello because of the race racism part of it. But then I'm, like, he also kind of got snubbed to be, like, Othello's lieutenant. Yeah, so he has, like, revenge. So he's kind of, like, the revenge, and then it's, like, okay, like, he could have just been, like, let's demote Lieutenant Cassio, and then I can be his lieutenant. Like, he could have just done that, but then he's, like, I'm gonna do that, and then I'm gonna make a plan that this, someone's made, I don't know who it was, steals her handkerchief. Yeah. And puts it in this location so it looks like they're having an affair, Cassio yeah. and Othello's wife. And, like, he, it just, like, seems so much planning just to I, I a like, dick. I like, <laughs> like, I like your reading of it. I yeah. do. I do. I, I think it fits. Mm -hmm. And I think the bully also fits. Like, I think depending on your overall reading of the theme of Othello. Yeah. Which makes sense. Like, I mean, it is a tragic place, so ultimately, like... The ending just sucks, and he was, you just know that Iago's a shitty person overall. Yeah, all like, but like, I like that there's ambivalence of what kind of villain he is because I think that makes a good villain too. Mm -hmm. Like, I actually really like the ones that we can't fully categorize. Yeah, a lot for sure. As long as it's done well, yeah, then yeah, it's like he could just have been a bully, or he really was out to like bring the demise of Othello and everyone around him. Yeah. A really, really famous example, if you're less familiar with, like, Othello, of the mastermind is Lex Luthor. Like, that's kind of the epitome right. of the mastermind, uh, like, trope or archetype or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, the next one I want to talk about is the machine. So this is also, this is fairly self-explanatory. The machine is a piece of technology that opposes the protagonist, general, or the protagonist, rather, a generally... You're not going to have any ability to, like, sway it or persuade it or anything like that. Although sometimes there are takes on it where the machine kind of becomes more like sentient. Yeah, and, sentient yeah. than that. I didn't have a great example for this one. I I have one from a video game. Yeah, and I have one from a movie. So nothing okay. literature related. <laughs> which I could be, like, more because... I don't uh, read a lot of science fiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I don't think it's necessarily they aren't out there. But I had Agent Smith who's an AI program in The Matrix. Fair. I've never seen The Matrix. What? I literally watched all three movies and watched the new one in theaters because I had to catch up. Oh, it's actually go. pretty good. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say Gladys from the Portal series. Mm. <laughs> um, That's a good one. Yeah, so definitely, like, just serving their purpose to any extent that they have to. Yeah. And they can be quite fun. Uh, Gladys would be a great example. If you're unfamiliar with the Portal games, but you're curious about what I'm talking about, uh, there's lots of gameplay you could watch online or, like, read about. It's a pretty funny mm -hmm. game in a way, um, but it does a really good job of the machine archetype. Yeah. We have two left, which is the henchman. <laughs> so this is somebody doing someone else's dirty work. Yeah. So generally this is... This happens a lot in series where you have, like, the henchman and you're not realizing that they're just a henchman. And then in the next book, they take on, like, the actual big bad evil guy or gal right. or person or envy or whatever they are. I have a, a cute one. It's just uh, it's just the henchman from 101 Dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gives you a good idea of, like, what that looks like. Yeah. The Death Eaters would be an example of this from... Harry Potter, yeah. you can argue that they fit in other categories based on their actual personalities, but overall they are just they're doing just... his work. And like I feel like with the henchmen, they're I feel like authors can have lots of fun with them because you could totally be like the henchman is the main villain, and then they could be undercover to like they're with the protagonist, they're yeah. following the group, all this, and then you're like, if the big reveal happens, you're like, oh, 
Oh no! Oh no! The henchman. He yeah. works for the evil guys. So I think like there can be lots of fun. Um, I had there was a, there was actually one in Warcross as well where one yes. was a henchman and then there was a there was some twists down the road, but which also makes it really interesting. I think henchmen are really fun. I think there's lots of fun. I actually because like they like also them. tend to be like there's like the trope of them being very like dopey or like not very smart. Mm-hmm. Like that's why they're not the leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love I love that aspect of it. But you can have so much fun because they kind of in lots of cases they become anti villains as well. Where you're yeah. like you kind of realize why they're doing the thing. Yeah. Like even in the case of 101 Dalmatians, there's an argument that they're just trying to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> like they don't really care. Like they're just being tortured by Cruella Deville in some ways to like get these puppies and they don't really care. They just don't want to yeah. starve. It's just like a means to an end. And I think that like, yeah, like the that's hen- pretty relatable to yeah, like just having is. a job because you need to make ends meet. Like those like, so aren't we all henchmen? When it comes down to it, no. Oh, um, no. I have the one. The real villain was made yeah. all along. Was the whole time. But uh, I have one that's more like, not like a fun, funny right. henchman. I have Anton Chigurh. He's from No Country for Old Men. And he's li- just the worst. Like, he has no emotion. He yeah. kind of is doing things for his own reasons. But he's basically a hitman who is just hired to collect this money from a drug deal gone wrong. He's killing anyone who kind of gets in his way or has put his hands on this money. Mm -hmm. Um, If he wants to give someone a chance, he flips a coin. They have to guess if it's going to be heads or tails. And if they're wrong, he just he just kills them. And he's literally terrifying that I would not want to be in his way. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't matter. You could have been like, I'm sorry I walked in on you doing that thing. And, and it's just like leave. a flip of a coin. And then you'd be like, yeah. So he's 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 freaky. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one is the fanatic. So this is someone driven to and somewhat by extreme ideology. So you can also make an argument here that the Death Eaters are the fanatics. Oh, okay. You can also make the argument that like Lord of Voldemort is a fanatic. Yeah. Because he believes in his ideal so much. That he has gone to the extent of getting rid of his nose or whatever you want to joke you want to make there. Um, <laughs> you you have a lot of examples of these. These are like the sociopathic ones yeah. sometimes, but not yeah. always. Uh, you ha- I thought you had a really good example of this. I, or did I think you were going... No, I, I thought you were going to say Snow. Yes. That was definitely... He's definitely one of my... I think the fanatics in general like probably my favorite types of villains just based on like characters that i have because like yes, yeah president snow also president coin and, and president coin. these are from the hunger games series yeah from the the hunger games. a little bit lost here um yeah. and the reason why both of them fit is they both are pushing their political ideology so much that they don't care who they kill along the way yeah which becomes the like oh my god coin was kind of evil the yeah. whole time or like capable of evil and yeah. i think I think that that's the interesting part is like she wasn't evil, but she was capable of it and she didn't really care as long as she was getting what she wanted. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why like President Snow, I didn't obviously love in the actual main trilogy of the Hunger Games, but then you read the prequel and it's like you see how he got to be the way that he was because in the prequel, he's doing a lot of these things um, to other people in his life and to get ahead in his life because it's protecting his family and protecting his name yeah. and it protecting people like just his status in the world mm-hmm. which I mean generally like that's a pretty selfish thing to do mm-hmm. but it was just so well done to see him make his way to eventually become the president because that was his his overall goal yeah um I even had Dr. Frankenstein because, yep. you know, he's obviously trying to create life and he's so focused on this that he doesn't just think about the consequences of what he's done. Like, I think that eventually he comes to, like, realize that, oh, hey, like, these people could reproduce and they could take over the human race, like the Frankenstein monsters. But also he do- he can't even, like, talk to the monster for two seconds to be like, hey, this guy's, like, really alone in this world. Yeah. Like, he's only thinking about himself. Um, yeah, Dolores Umbridge. 
I feel like yeah. he's a pretty good fanatic. Like, So, I know you talked about before that you could almost fit her in the bully category, and I, mm-hmm. I agree. She's another one that crosses a little bit for me, mm-hmm. because a lot of, I think, overall, at the end of the day, if you boil her down to it, you're right, like, the fanatic. But the little things she does every day is the bully. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, she does things that aren't necessary to her overall cause. Cause, yeah. Um, but, yeah. She's a good one. And then Karis Vachuria. She is a villain from an Ember in the Ashes series. Okay. And she's definitely, like, she wants power. That's her main goal. She'll mm-hmm. treat everyone else like garbage who doesn't fit into her, where she's going. Yeah. Um, you know, she's cruel to slaves. She goes on basically a manhunt to mass murder this group of people. Um whether they're free or imprisoned, so... And she hates her own son, so... She's a great... She's a great person. She's a great person. We all need her in our life. No, we don't. <laughs> okay, so those kind of cover the categories, and that wasn't necessarily, like, what this was about, although, like, I'm sure anyone listening to this is, like, kind of thinking to themselves, oh, I really like that type, mm-hmm. or I, I know that type when I see it, and, and that is actually where I go. I know a lot of books now are doing the anti-villain, yeah. I find that a lot. It's either the anti-villain or the what I would consider like the complete opposite, which is evil incarnate. It's like, oh, it was just evil. Yeah. <laughs> this was an evil person. Why? Evil. Just evil. Yeah. Um, so and those don't necessarily make good antagonists. Like I think a good antagonist is a little bit more complex than that. And I think every antagonist kind of has its purpose. And like you can have a good story and not have a great mm-hmm. antagonist. It's hard, but like you could do it. But for me, I have kind of three things, and I know you kind of have three things as well. So, like, these are the traits of a good antagonist for me. The first one being justifiable in the world that they exist. Mm-hmm. So I didn't put realistic for a reason, because I, I I didn't want it to be conflated with the idea of it being lifelike. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't have to be lifelike at all for them to be a good antagonist. It just has to be justifiable in the laws of the world as we know it. So, you know, if you're thinking about... Even, like, Stephen King's The Shining, like, that's a really good example in which we're slowly introduced to this idea of, like, the hotel kind of feels like a character and mm-hmm. it kind of feels alive. And then by the end, it makes sense where the antagonists have come from and, like, they feel realistic Yeah, within that world. Yeah. Like, not in ours, but in that world. Yes, for sure. And I think a really good example of this is the very classic one, Sauron. I promised I was going to talk about him <laughs> again. <laughs> I love Lord of the Rings, you know that, but, like, despite the fact that he's, like, the main villain and antagonist throughout the entire story, like, Sauron is actually, as I said, never described in anything other than vague terms, and yet his overbearing, all-encompassing evilness is formidably sensed throughout the entirety of the novel. So his connection to the One Ring makes that okay. Like, the fact that we know about this character that we've never seen or even had described to us in great detail, or, like, the characters have never actually, like, quote-unquote, seen is fine because his connection to that ring that Frodo is carrying around is made very clear. Mm -hmm. And the connection justifies the fact that we just feel this, like, kind of oppressive sense of him and that the closer they get to him, the harsher that sense becomes. And we can feel it in the book, which is, like, kind of powerful for, like, this villain that you never really actually see. Yeah. So it's just backed up by the structure of the world. And I think that works really great. But it is an evil incarnate. But it's not just like, oh, he was just evil because evil is evil. Yeah. It, it was like, he's evil because of this connection to the ring. And even though he is this embodiment of everything evil, his connection, like the fact that he had the ring at one point, makes it realistic. Because we learn about the addiction to the ring and how the ring right. kind of like takes over the mind and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So it just makes sense in the world that it's happening in. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you threw that in a different book, it wouldn't work anymore. Yeah. Because it wouldn't be set up to work. So that's kind of a characteristic that I like in my antagonist. They just have to be, they have to feel real within the world that they're in. Because yeah. Because that's a, if it's, if it feels off, it just, it, it won't really work for me. Yeah. That makes sense. And like, kind of like going off of that, my, my, um, one of the things that make a good antagonist for me is, like, it's just, it's a worthy opponent. Oh, so, I like that, yeah. Yeah, so it's just, like, they have that equal skill or intelligence 
and it just like is always raising the stakes but obviously again it has to make sense in that world like they can't just be like super super strong and there's like no reason to it or vice versa like super weak and you're like why are you even here yeah so unless like your main character is like that too or like I don't know but like to me it's important that they they're are increasing the stakes for our main character or protagonist. They are there making the story progress, I guess. Like, the villain still has to have a role that the story is going to continue forward. It's not just going to be like, oh, our hero was strong enough to defeat them the first time they meet. Like, they have to have growth and everything. And I think, like, like animes do this really, really well. They actually do. (laughs) Like, when you were talking about that, I was thinking of a... Like a manga, I really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ha- I have some qualms with it, so if you end up looking it up, um, it is called Collide. I'll actually I'll put a link to it in the description or like a link to the author because I can't I can't quite pull up their name right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're just kind of like this antagonist that like your like main character. So it's like about superheroes, yeah. Kind of like people like superheroes, and the main character is so strong and is like the strongest type of superhero and, like, nothing phases him and, like, all this, he has all these superpowers and then he meets the antagonist and he gets the shit kicked out of him. (laughs) And I was, like, I remember reading it and being, like, oh, (laughs) like, like, fuck. Because, like, you set up this expectation and you exceeded it, but it was a, it was an opponent. Mm -hmm. And it felt dangerous. Mm -hmm. Even though this, like, the stakes were, like, the, the, the height of the power was so high already. Yeah. But then it was, like, no, he's stronger, actually. Yeah. That's a good example. And, like, for, like Naruto, like, that's a pretty famous, like, <laughs> manga. <laughs> and it's, like, Naruto, you know, he's kind of, like, a joke. Like, people make fun of him. Yeah. And then he's, like, put up against all these foes. And then he, like, gets stronger. He defeats the foe. And then a new one comes. And you're, like, there's no way he's going to defeat this guy who's immortal and has all these, like, <laughs> extra things growing out of his body or whatever the heck the villain is and that season (laughs) yeah whatever but like it still challenges naruto like he realizes there's something that has to be done or i don't know if you've ever watched or read um one punch man i have not no that one like it's a good show because it's funny like i've only watched the anime i would say that one is shows like kind of a lack of good villains yeah because he literally defeats them all with one punch yeah it's just like like, and everyone else is like struggling to beat the villain but then he just comes along He's like pow yeah so like that i don't love but it's a good it's, it's entertaining it's entertaining <laughs> that's what i mean like a good antagonist doesn't mean a good story necessarily although it is generally a part of a lot of good stories mm-hmm. i was just gonna say sailor moon as well yes so sailor there was there's always that like moment sailor moon encounters a villain and then she's like oh my god i'm too weak and then she powers up yeah, and like, like, they literally <laughs> yeah. call it powering up, which I think is awesome. But like, like she gets like new abilities, and she gets, mm-hmm. and she has to like overcome it with the power of friendship and all the like yeah. great themes that are in Sailor Moon. Anime and manga tend to do a really good job of this, and you know it's coming, and it still doesn't feel like I never feel cheapened by it, and no. I, I still sometimes do feel worried for them. Yeah, like for sure. there were parts of Sailor Moon where I was like, I don't. How the fuck? Like, how the fuck is she gonna... Like, I know she's yeah. gonna survive, but, like, I don't know how, and yeah. that's interesting, right? Yeah. Okay, so you actually mentioned this kind of in your description, but my second point, my second trait that I love in a good antagonist is that the stakes are high. Mm. And I'm gonna explain this. So, uh, this is actually something I say to my tutoring students all the time <laughs> when they're writing stories, and I say, what are the stakes, and can we raise them? Are the stakes mm. high enough? Mm-hmm. And every time they're like, I don't know what you mean, Marissa, like, explain it more. And what I mean here is that there's stakes in everything that your character does, right? Like, even, like, everything we do. And this can kind of be boiled down to motivation. But it's like, I'm going to get something out of the action. And there's going to be a consequence if I don't do the action, right? Mm -hmm. And so smaller moments obviously have smaller stakes, both good and bad. And if larger events need larger stakes... But everyone, everything has that risk, reward, but also that benefit and consequence mm-hmm. to it, right? And we, we think of that really in motivation for, like, protagonists and our heroes. They have to have good motivation. They have to, you know, there, there has to be a lot at stake. You know, like, what are they going to risk? What, are they, what might they lose? But I think a lot of 
people forget about that in terms of antagonists. Like, there's a reason that they're doing this, too. Yeah. And, uh, like, some antagonists don't really have a reason, and that's where they kind of fall flat for me. They're like, oh, I'm doing this because I'm evil. And it's like, yeah, yeah but what? Like, what are yeah. you gaining from this, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, like, the um, Matilda example you gave. Like, what was she actually gaining from being a pulley? Yeah. A little bit of power, but, like, not no, a lot, right? Nothing really, yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to bring up Jean-Jé uh, Zhao's Iron Widow. Mm-hmm. And I think they do a tremendous job in this one. So for those unfamiliar with this novel, I'm just going to give a quick little kind of recap so you know what I'm talking about. So in this world, girls are encouraged and even dream of making noble, making a noble sacrifice to protect their country by offering themselves up as what is called a concubine pilot in these giant transforming robots that defend the country. And this is in spite of the fact that they generally, these girls and women, die in the process. Our main character Setchian is a bit different, though. She offers herself up as a con- concubine pilot in order to assassinate the male pilot as she considers this revenge for him killing her sister. It turns out she is able to kill the male pilot, but she doesn't actually die herself during the flight, which means she is termed an iron widow or a female who can overtake the male energy during a flight. And I'll kind of leave it at that. You know enough for me to continue this. Yeah. So while there are many villains in this novel and like many antagonists, All of them share a similar stake, or most of them share a similar stake in opposing our main character, which is that should she succeed, should she be allowed to live, should she be allowed to do what she's doing, they will lose power. So she's this, like, firecracker, furious, raging inferno, capable of threatening a lot of things that are happening in this misogynistic culture and things that are killing women. And she represents to all the antagonists a change that would leave them with less. So less power, less influence, and less say in their society. So they benefit from pushing her down into her place by forcing her to feel silenced or threatened or by trying to kill her because they have a risk and reward, right? So they have a, what's at risk is their freedoms, their power, their influence, all this stuff. And the reward is potentially more freedom, more power, more influence. And so you have this balance of the stakes. Mm -hmm. So they're all kind of good antagonists because when you sit there and you're like, well, why are they being like this? Why are they doing this to her? You have an answer. Yeah. I No, I like that. And it, I think it shows that like a good book could have good antagonists that all have the same thing they're trying to achieve yeah. without it, with them still being different enough that it's not like, oh, they all just the are out to kill her. But yeah, they all yeah. have their own various reasons, and they're all done in very different way. Yeah. I like it. Thank you. Um, I have one, which is strong connection to hero. I think that it's really important for the antagonist to, like, be, like, like, why is that antagonist the protagonist's antagonist? Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Why like, are they connected to that person? Yeah, exactly. And obviously, like, a big... Most common example is Harry Potter and Voldemort. Like, they're, he literally murdered Harry Potter's, like, parents. Mm-hmm. The scar is on his head that is always there. Um, and it, yeah, like, you just want to feel that it makes sense. Yeah. And that's kind of all I don't really have to say about that. <laughs> all right. And then my third point, or my third trait for a good antagonist, is the t- antagonist is somewhat with like a very key asterisk and somewhat relatable. Mm-hmm. And this, I put this third for a reason. So I don't think this needs to be in every antagonist. I've really liked antagonists without feeling like at all able to relate to them. Like I can't relate to Sauron. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really can't. Yeah. Um, And I still think Sauron is a really good antagonist. So this is kind of like my like, if it, if it works and it has all the other stuff, this is just kind of like the cherry, mm-hmm. like the whipped cream on top. So a good use of, like, pathos or emotional understanding of, like, who they are, why they are the way that they are is really important to this. So I'm going to stick to my example of the Iron Widow. So uh, Mao Shouzhou-Ying is somebody who is initially kind to Zetian in the, in the book, but she ends up betraying her in the heat of battle, which leads to some things that I'm not going to outline. Uh, that was a big spoiler. We'll have that yeah. in the caption. but. Uh, still worth reading even through that. Um, and like, I don't know about you, but like, I kind of got the impression she was gonna betray our main character. Yeah, I was hoping not. 
I was hoping not, but I yeah. felt like you felt it, right? Like it was like there was enough yeah. foreshadowing there. And I feel like to me I was hoping not because it is such a like feminist novel. Yeah. But anyways, continue. So her solidification as an enemy is almost immediately brushed aside as Chugging uh reveals that she was only acting in these ways to protect her family. And like as a human being, you like yeah. it immediately made it like you're still like she immediately became an anti-villain. Mm-hmm. Like, in that moment, right? Like, you didn't want to hate her as much as you did. Yeah. Even though she had done this, like, unforgivable thing in our eyes and in our MC's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, that moment, we empathize with her plight as, like, a human. Like, mm-hmm. she was just a human being. And we can still understand that, like, what she's doing is really wrong and flawed and dangerous and lethal and still understand that, like potentially or even be scared of the fact that potentially in the same situation we might have done the same thing yeah yeah and I think that's what makes her like a really interesting character is like that moment where you're like well what else was I supposed to do and it's like okay but you didn't have to do it like that necessarily Mm -hmm. but like then you start having this conversation where you're like like I don't know like let me think this through and like yeah you can like make a different path for her but like it's hard it's just it and it's zeroed in on that point of like women existing in a misogynist society can't win at all no matter what right for me but like that was still relatable like her idea of like i just want to protect my family but it was like but why did you have to kill like why did you have to hurt mine yeah kind of thing yeah i like that one a lot it kind of like it's not the same at all but (laughs) (laughs) you know how like people put like serial killers or like other villains in books or whatever on this pedestal because they're described as like attractive yeah like so, i feel like that's the a relatable factor yeah and i don't love that i don't love it either it's so toxic but i'm like and i so i think a big point here to make i the the more unrealistic the situation is mm-hmm. the more i feel like i need this yeah for sure because like the, in fantasy novels when you make me relate to the villain ooh, that's interesting yeah if you're talking about like real life crime or like murder mysteries yeah no especially if it's like a serial killer like there's no justification no no like it's different if it's like self-defense or something like that but even that is like you know but like it makes you uncomfortable too Mm -hmm. and like that's kind of why it's kind of powerful as an as a technique of making a villain or a protagonist or antagonist because you do kind of make your audience a little bit like ooh, yeah like Oh, I saw myself in them. Yeah. And I didn't like that. And I think, like, that could be, like, any, like, for instance, the Poppy War. Like, you have a whole nation attacking another nation. And it's like, okay, they're doing horrendous stuff. But in the eyes of them, if you look from their point of view, they're doing it to protect their own nation and their family. And and it's like, you almost can't, like, think about that when you're reading about them. Um. My third one, honestly, you already talked about it and I didn't realize it was like basically like when you're talking about high stakes, like a solid motivation. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know. No, but that works like it, it, that but. that was kind of another way of saying it. I like I like saying stakes because it just it's just a good line to ask yourself as a writer. Mm-hmm. I find is like what's at stake in this scene? And like and it's kind of a reminder of like, is this necessary? Yeah. Because it was like, is there anything at stake? Because if there's nothing at stake, why are we here? Mm-hmm. But it's a good question to kind of ask with, like, antagonists because what is at stake? Like, what is at stake for the antagonist? And you can think of, like, very famous examples. I don't like that we talked about necessarily Harry Potter as much as we did yeah. for some obvious reasons. But, yeah. like, Voldemort, very clearly, like, what's at stake is his mortality. Yeah. And you can think about that in terms of, like, really bad villains and, like, you don't really know what's at stake. And so you don't really know why they're there. So I think that the fourth Twilight book is, like, why the fuck are we here? (laughs) But, like, honestly, like, what is actually at stake for this? Yeah. Is a really good question there. And I know there's ways to answer that, but it never feels fully genuine, which to me indicates that there wasn't enough at stake. For that to be happening. Yeah. For totally. for the antagonists. They had more to lose than to gain. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. 
So that's where that like fourth book really falls flat for me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the antagonists in that series actually, they don't have enough to gain Mm -hmm. through their actions. They have things to lose, but they don't have enough to gain, which makes them just kind of like, I don't know why you're doing the thing you're doing. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I think like on that point, that needs to be like established early-ish on. Like I don't want it. The, thrown in the middle of battle and being like they have this huge monologue be like when i was a child you murdered my blah 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 and you know and they go on a huge rant and you're yeah like, you're fighting you're fighting like why are you talking about what's at stake here in the yeah middle like, of a fight like you should have done this earlier or in little snippets at least and, before the fight like yeah. you could have said something then yeah because then at that point it's almost like the writer's trying to redeem the the villain the villain and it's like I it's it's an empty pathos for me so pathos yeah. is that moment of where the villain or it's generally a villain but any character appeals for emotional mm-hmm. sim- like for sympathy basically and it's really common in bad writing to do that at a moment when they are at an unredeemable like spot mm-hmm. Instead of doing it earlier so you understand why they are about to do the thing that they do. Yeah. So, like, Lady Macbeth is a really interesting one if you look at her as a villain. Oh. Because uh, she is kind of a villain in that story. Yeah. And, but, like, her explanation comes slowly throughout the story. Mm. And, like, you get why she's doing what she's doing. Even though you're like, you could have not. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you're like, you could have just not. But, like, you feel an amount of sympathy for her because she's explained it. And same with um, when I just had it. This is another Shakespearean example. Oh, Shylock from The Merchant of Venice. Which is, like, I'm not going to explain kind of the go and read it if you're the one to <laughs> or whatever. We talk about it in a later podcast. But there's a moment where he explains why he hates this person so much. Mm -hmm. And you kind of sit there and you're like, ah, valid. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) dude kind of was a dick to you, actually. (laughs) And that's our, that's our, like, protagonist. So, like, you're kind of sitting there like, oh, now I feel awkward. Yeah. Because, like, I'm still rooting for him because you're being a dick. But, like, kind of deserves a little, like, there's, like, that moment where you're like, ugh, I kind of get it. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I like that, the... The motivation is key. Okay. Let's go on to what you're reading next. I am reading Yumi by Sifton Tracy Annapair. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, I'm not very far into it. Very interesting concept. She is, uh, the main character is like an English teacher in Japan. Um, there's some like Japanese folklore type stuff going on in it. That's all I got so far because I'm not very far in it, but it sounds super interesting. <laughs> Perfect. I'm excited to hear your thoughts at the end because I, yeah. I know you haven't gotten too far into it yet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts at the end. I have Wild Card, which is the sequel to Warcross yes. um, by Marie Lu on my list. And I'm not going to try to guess what else I'm going to read yeah. other than the fact that I will read. I'm going to try to read a lot. Because I'm now going on vacation. Yes. Yes. Um, and that brings us to our next point, which is that our next topic is not going to be drawn from our draw or draw jar. Drawn. 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 I'm going to draw. Drawn from the jar. I can speak. <laughs> our next topic is not going to be drawn from the jar. That's a hard. It freeze. is actually hard. It's not even you. It's just like. English is hard. English sucks. Yeah. Um, it's great, but it sucks. <laughs> uh, it, we're not going to draw our topic from the jar. Just, I'm trying to make that sentence work better, and it's just, it's <laughs> not really. Uh, we are going to instead be talking about our top and bottom reads so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say best and worst, just our highest and lowest rated Yeah. so far this year. Uh, I'm really excited to do that and just kind of flash back to some of the books I've read recently. Me too, me too. I mean, I have a few in my mind that are more recent that I'm like, oh, I want to talk about them, but there's also a bunch at the beginning of the year that I kind of forgot about. Yeah, so I'm excited to take a look back. We're going to be doing that, and then we'll be back with a topic from the jar 
in the <laughs> now I'm just worried I can't speak uh, in the in the next podcast after that. So that's where we're going mm-hmm. next time. And yeah, any final thoughts? No, but I, I think we just need to say all of the sentences we can that are similar to drawn from the jar. Drawn from the jar. Taken from the glass container. Taken from the glass. <laughs> Tooken. 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 Tooken from the jarreth. From the jarreth. Okay. There we go. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of, or this episode of the Book Jar Podcast. If you have a topic you want us to discuss on this podcast, make sure to send us a DM on Instagram at the Book Jar Pod. We will put it in our book jar and we will draw it at some point in the future and we'll mention your name on the podcast if you want. Uh, We also have social media content on Instagram as previously mentioned, so go check us out there for some awesome reels and reviews and all that good stuff. Otherwise, that's it from us for this one. I'm going to end this before (laughs) I completely am unable to talk. Uh, We wish you happy reading and we'll be back soon. Bye.